we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week, we're going to be talking about a new report published by the Center, authored by George Fishman, a senior legal fellow here at the Center, long experience on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch. And specifically, it's about the issue of students from communist China and does the large-scale admission of foreign students from the PRC, especially those studying in STEM fields, so-called, represent a threat economically or security threat to the United States. And the report on our website at cis.org is somewhat provocatively titled Science, Technology, Espionage, and Math, STEM. But STEM, the espionage is usually engineering, science, technology, engineering, and math. The point being, of course, that the large-scale admission of foreign students from communist China is, in fact, enabling espionage of various kinds and threatens our economic and national security. And George is going to be telling us a little bit about what his findings were on this topic in his report. George, thanks for joining us. And if you could just start sort of generally, what's the issue here? Well, Mark, thanks so much for having me again. It's an issue I've been following for a long time, way back in 2005, when I was in the House Judiciary Committee, my subcommittee chairman, John Hostetler, had a hearing on this issue. It was a partly classified hearing on espionage, non-traditional espionage being conducted on U.S. university campuses by foreign students, foreign professors, etc. And it was widely recognized then that the People's Republic of China was the leading proponent of this practice, of course, taking advantage of our open society, of open research to task pretty much all their foreign students coming here to gather whatever information they could that could be of use economically or militarily to the Chinese government. And the theft of intellectual property, the expertise to outright espionage. And the scale has only grown dramatically since 2005. Back then, maybe a little more than 10% of the foreign student population in the U.S. was from the People's Republic of China. Now it's over a third. Wow. Over 300,000 foreign college students a year in our universities that's are from, from the People's from Republic the PRC, of China. Right, yeah. And that's happened because of deliberate policy decisions by the George W. Bush the Obama administration, to encourage this on the theory that it would foster greater openness and democratization in the People's Republic of China. I see what the universities, you know, how they would encourage more of this because they're, they're paying customers. But what could federal policy do that encourage this? I think 
the most important federal policy is the ability of foreign students to come here to go pretty much wherever they want. Certainly David North here at the Center for Immigration Studies has looked a lot into visa mills and you know fake universities. But I'm talking about the real universities, right. the Harvards, the Yales, that are doing the cutting edge research with applicability to next generation technologies and things with military applications. There's really no bar, except once in a while, there was one with Libya for a while, but generally no bar on what subjects the foreign students can take. Under a duration of status regime, they can pretty much stay here indefinitely. Usually when you come here on a temporary visa, it's for a set term. You're right. here for two years. And at the end of two years, unless you get an extension, you have to leave under duration of status. You know, as long as you're attending college, you can stay in your visa. You could go from major to major to major, go from a four-year plan to a five-year plan to a six-year plan. And some students for decades have remained in the U.S. in the status. And the thing specifically about the People's Republic of China, which is even admitted by national security officials in the Biden administration, they view each student that's sent over, willingly or not, as a gatherer of information. Whether they approach them before they come to the U.S., while they're in the U.S., or after they come back to China to gather whatever information they can, entice them back to China after they graduate to work there and share all the technical knowledge they've gained send it back while they're here in the U.S. And this wouldn't be so concerning except for two factors. One is much of China's economic growth has been based on stealing Western technology, paid for by American taxpayers or the sweat and ingenuity of workers at American corporations expropriated for free for use by China to compete against American products around the world. But most importantly, China now has a goal to overtake the U.S. militarily. The chief uniformed military officer in the People's Republic of China says a war with the United States is inevitable. And, you know, what are today's headlines about uh, speculation that China may invade Taiwan as early as the fall? Will the U.S. respond militarily? President Biden seemingly indicates, yes, we will. We could be in a war with China sooner than later. We have hundreds of thousands of PRC nationals in the U.S. Not only are they sending back such large amounts of sensitive technology, but if we go to war, they will be here. What happens then? It will be exceedingly difficult, you know, even putting aside more students coming or not coming. The population already here, under current U.S. immigration law, exceedingly difficult if they don't want to leave to remove them. And under the Chinese strategy, so many technologies have both industrial and military applications. And the plan to overtake the U.S. militarily is based on the funneling of this dual-use technology. I mean, in a sense, it's sort of three things because it's regular economic technology that may have no military applications, but it still helps power their economy. Then purely military technology 
And then, like you said, dual use things that are both civilian and military uses. And this espionage involves all of them. In other words, it's not just a military thing. It's also building up China economically as well. Exactly. And for China, building itself up economically is a military goal. Right, right. And it's not just me. An analyst at the RAND Corporation has stated that should China overtake the U.S. militarily, this would represent perhaps the most destabilizing geostrategic development of the 21st century. Steep advances in the People's Liberation Army's conventional military capabilities could, for the first time in modern history, pit the United States against a militarily superior adversary. And essentially, we're facilitating their ability to do this through the policy of allowing hundreds of thousands of students a year to come here, whether they have any ill intent or not on their own, they're all being used by their government to achieve the same. And I think to go back to your point about various administrations in the past encouraging this, a lot of people figure, well, you know, it's sort of globalist, blah, blah, blah. I just think it's naivete. I mean, I really think that a lot of people, even in government, people who should know better, just see foreign students from China as though they're like American students in, you know, Barcelona or something. When in fact, because of the nature of the regime and the differences in the regime, there's no comparability. Because even if you're a Chinese student who couldn't care less about invading Taiwan or any of that stuff, your parents are still back there. I mean, the regime that governs mainland China can exercise all kinds of pressure on you so that both willing and unwilling people become tools, essentially, of the Chinese state. Well, sure. Dan Cadman at the Center for Immigration Studies has recently written about a Chinese student at Duke University who, because she tried to foster dialogue between Chinese and Tibetan students, was vilified as a traitor by other students from the PRC at Duke University. And apparently, her parents back in mainland China were getting death threats right. for the crime of trying to foster dialogue between Chinese and Tibetan students. And so while that's not an espionage issue, it does highlight how every Chinese student is at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party, even when they're here at a campus in the United States. In fact, a Democrat Senator Mark Warner has indicated that his concerns and that the Chinese government views it the legal obligation of all of its students coming here to do whatever they can to foster China's national interests and get whatever technology they can. And one problem in a law enforcement perspective is, aside from the sheer numbers, there's no way in the world to monitor hundreds of thousands of students. But a lot of this appropriation of technology isn't strictly illegal. It's because, again, of open research and the admirably open society we have, it's taken advantage of. Right. But to bring hundreds of thousands of students here either to steal or to misappropriate technology that either economically or militarily or both might be used against the United States. And and it wasn't always like this. As recently as 2008, 2009, 14% of foreign students were from mainland China. In 1984 and 1985, when I was in college, 3%. So it's not as if this has always been the case. 
It's really been the last few years because of the encouragement of the Bush and Obama administrations. Yeah, interesting. So your point about oversight, in other words, there's no way you can really keep track of hundreds of thousands of people, reminds me of what happened with the Iranian hostage crisis. This is now back in 1979, when the supposed Iranian students working basically for the new Ayatollah's regime in Iran took a number of American diplomatic personnel hostage. President Carter tasked the then INS with coming up with a list, information about, because there were lots of Iranian students because we were friendly with the Shah. And I think it was after the hostages had all been released that the INS finally gave them a count of how many Iranian students there were. <laughs> and I can bet there weren't 300,000. No, there weren't. Even then, there weren't that many, exactly. But since 9-11, too, remember, because some of those people were you know, students as well at flight school, we created the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, right? SEVP, which is within ICE, supposed to overlook it. We've talked about this before. What are they doing about this? I mean, it's not that they necessarily have the statutory tools to be able to do anything. They, assuming schools are doing what they properly should do, and David North has written about Columbia University trying to subvert the entire monitoring process, we'll know who's going where. But in terms of, you know, if they change majors, we don't know that. What they're doing there, we don't know that. You know, we may know where they are, their names, and various other information, but it doesn't give really the legal tools to be able to do anything about it. So in other words, even if the universities were complying with the rules, and even if SEVP, the ICE office that deals with this, was doing everything it could it still isn't really addressing this problem because this isn't so much a problem of like overstaying visas kind of thing. This is what the Chinese students are doing here when they're lawfully here in status. Exactly. And the SEVA system was designed, as you say, to deal with students never going home and violating or immigration right. laws. Which is a big problem. Yeah, it's but, just but that it, it doesn't address this problem. Exactly. Interesting. There was something, and you mentioned this, you talk about it briefly in the report, the China initiative that DOJ set up under the Trump administration to at least look at this or keep track of it? And what happened? What was that supposed to do and what's happened to it? Attorney General Sessions in the Trump administration wanted to focus law enforcement resources on this threat of intellectual property theft, not only at universities, but at U.S. corporations, things of that nature, because the majority of the Department of Justice's prosecutions and cases in these areas are People's Republic of China cases. That's not a partisan thing. That's Democrat administration, Republican administration, a majority of cases. And right. an assistant attorney general in the current Biden administration recognized or said that it was effective in focusing resources on the problem. And yet, probably because of pressure applied to him, canceled the entire program because civil rights activists were claiming it was fostering intolerance, bias, and racial profiling. The whole, the whole China initiative, the whole was, China initiative was canceled. And one thing I note in the report is the irony that the government, the, the entity engaged in racial profiling is not the United States. It's the People's Republic of China. One of the primary tools they use to get this information funneled from students and professors back to China is calls to ethnic solidarity. 
they are using racial profiling to get this information. Sort of help the motherland by stealing this uh, IP from exactly. the United States. Exactly. And so it certainly, I would think, behooves our law enforcement to focus on those who our adversary is focusing on itself. Right. And the idea of this is racial profiling is ridiculous. This isn't, we're not going after Taiwanese students or Korean or whatever it is. I mean, unless they're individual cases of problems, this is a foreign state, frankly, an enemy state, using our law and not just our law, but even our sort of sensitivities against us. Yeah. We haven't declared China an enemy. China has declared the United States an enemy. Right. And again, said within the last year or so that military conflict with the U.S. is inevitable. Certainly how Russia eventually fares in the Ukraine may have a role in whether China will do something imminently or not. But, you know, these strategies of using Chinese students overseas to bolster China's military with a recognition that without these sort of activities, China will not be able to overcome the U.S. It's a deliberate strategy, which you can read about. Not I, I don't read or write Chinese. This is published strategies by a foreign government. Interesting. And actually, there was a novel I read a while ago. It was written by a retired admiral. I forget his name now. He was, I think, head of NATO and then later was dean at the Fletcher School, where I went to graduate school. It's called 2034. And he kind of plays out what a war with China might look like. And at the core of it is that the Chinese succeed in using technology to prevent our ability to actually respond, you know, blind our ships, that sort of thing. It's not science fiction. I think the, the scariest thing is the vast improvements in China's nuclear weapon capacity in the last decade or so. They've pretty much all been driven by stolen Western technology, has enabled the vast increase in the threat of China's nuclear weapons. And what is the um, hypersonic missiles? I mean, I don't know, we're not discussing specific technologies here, but that was in the news that their hypersonic missile program actually seems to be working, whereas ours isn't. Well, maybe, maybe we should try to appropriate yeah, some yeah, well, exactly. technology back here. Send some students there to study and steal their technology. So what do we do about this? I mean, uh, if there's 300,000 Chinese students, as you mentioned, just as a practical matter with all of the due process things, we're not going to be deporting everybody tomorrow, but it's also not you know, it's a process, not an event to respond to this. What, what should we be doing? Well, I think the two most important things to do, the first is was something which was proposed by the Trump administration as a proposed regulation, but it never was finalized, to end this duration of status business and say, if you're coming to go to college, you can come for four years. Right. If you don't get your degree after four years, come back to us and we can talk. But this, to apply for an extension. Yeah, but this words. ability to just stay indefinitely in the U.S. is, uh, you, know, you know, it's crazy. It's also crazy to let students from adversarial countries to study in technologies, uh, STEM technologies, technologies with military applications. You know, for a while, Libyan students weren't allowed to study like, like nuclear, nuclear engineering or yeah, something. Yeah, but right. it's few and far between when, when that is used. But the single most effective thing that could be done about new students coming in is the president, President Biden, using the powers he has under the Immigration and Nationality Act to bar the entry of classes of aliens who pose a threat to national security. President Trump used this. The Supreme Court 
affirmed the potency of his power and especially of the president's power and especially in national security situations, not second guessing the national security decisions of the president. So essentially, there could be a blanket ban on new visas being issued foreign students who want to come here to study in sensitive fields and STEM fields, et cetera. The issue, as you said, is what about the 300,000 already here? It was, it was almost 400,000 before COVID. Now, now it's about 300,000. You know, if they leave the U.S., then they could be kept out from returning sure. under such a policy. But to deport an admitted legal alien, there are mechanisms in the law to do so which have been used extremely rarely. And it's may, very labor-intensive yes, as well. Yes, may right? or may yeah. not be unconstitutional. Right. And given the backlogged immigration courts, where it takes years for a garden-variety illegal alien to get a hearing, how are there going to be 300,000 deportation cases? Yeah, but that's no reason not to do it in the sense that attrition, eventually some of those people will go back no, and exactly. what have you. So, um, but it might behoove Congress and the president to pass new laws in these sort of situations to simply safeguard the national security, especially from the theft of very sensitive technology. And God forbid there ever is a war between the U.S. and China. 300,000 foreign national students here. The term was enemy alien. Is yes. The, back, I mean, that's yeah. essentially, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Although Congress never declares war anymore, so I don't know if that applies. <laughs> so could, for instance, Congress pass legislation that Say maybe they change this duration of status thing so that, you know, if you come in, whatever the term of study, you're coming for a two-year, four-year program, that's how long your visa's for. Could they do that retroactively in statute and say, well, people from the PRC, their visas now expire when their current course of study ends and they have to reapply if they want to stay? If the administration were to do that by regulation, it's kind of dicey as right. to whether they could do it retroactively. I think it's clear, especially because this is not a criminal matter. It's right. not sending someone to jail. Congress could. Congress could do it, though. Congress could oh, yeah. do it. Right. Interesting. Okay. I remember Senator Cotton, who's spoken on this a lot, a number of years ago now, he was talking about this exact issue and saying, look, if they want to come here and study French poetry, that's fine. But you know, these technical fields, we should just not be allowing this. And so it seems to me that if you can keep track of what people are studying, and a Chinese student, even somebody who's you know friendly with the army, with the People's Liberation Army, wants to study French poetry. I don't know, sort of, what's the harm? Well, Mark, uh, you know, do do we need hundreds of thousands of existentialists? Yeah, well, no. I mean, look, at, at I'm I'm point. a I'm a squish. What can I say? So, no, we don't need hundreds of thousands of uh, existentialists. So, is this likely to be on the agenda of, say, a Republican majority next year? or Republican administration in a couple of years? I mean, is this something that has gotten enough attention among policymakers? I'm pessimistic, first, because, as I noted, we had a hearing on this almost two decades ago, and the situation has only gotten more intense, dramatic uh, since then. In addition, as you alluded to before, to a large extent, U.S. universities have become dependent on full tuition paying foreign students. Right. And there would be a huge lobbying effort against anything that would threaten the shutoff of this pipeline of, of money. And a lot of universities now have campuses in China. And so they're essentially 
in a sense, kind of compromised. I mean, their financial interests are tied with the Chinese Communist Party at this point. I, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of universities do. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that this is often the way actually it works in any kind of democracy. If there's a strong interest, it's going to block change until, you know, one of our carriers is nuked, at which point maybe something will happen. You know, I'm certainly worried that it'll take some sort of, not a carrier getting nuked, but some sort of clash resulting in loss of life over Taiwan that will finally make people take note. There's enough universities with enough money who are so invested in this. They will fight scorched earth, I think, to defend this. Yeah. I mean, it would have been less of an issue a decade or so ago. But now that a third of all foreign students are from the PRC, you can't get around that number. You know, it's not like, well, 5%, it's 35%. Is there an argument for rethinking the way we do the whole foreign student program in general? In other words, not just operating within the parameters we have, but responding to the Chinese threat, but generally speaking, why are we taking so many foreign students? Well, some people have certainly argued that it's disadvantaging many U.S. students who can't get in to certain universities, even certain state universities, specifically because they wouldn't be paying as much in tuition as the foreign students. So there's actually a preference for foreign students, even at some state universities, and that's disadvantaging American kids, American students. Is there a role for state legislatures? I have no idea how this works, but could say, I mean, this wouldn't happen in California, but let's say, I don't know, (laughs) let's say Ohio State or the Ohio legislature could say that Ohio State cannot admit students with PRC citizenship to study any STEM field. Well, having gone to the University of Michigan, I wouldn't want to do anything to help Ohio State University. Okay, yeah, well, I understand that. So let's say say University of Michigan, although I don't know if the legislature there would go for it, but is it the kind of thing a state legislature could potentially deal with? They they certainly could in terms of admission standards for their state Because it wouldn't be an immigration matter, strictly speaking, because in order to get the I-20 form, which is the form from the government that allows you to come as a foreign student, you have to show that you've been accepted by a university. So, for instance, the Florida legislature, just to take a state at random, could say that their state universities are prohibited from accepting PRC students to study any technical field. They could certainly do that with the only proviso, you know, who knows how state Supreme Court justices in some of these states would interpret their state constitutions. But other than that, yes. Under federal law, there's no issue. There's no problem there. Uh, With this Supreme Court, I would say no. Okay. Well, okay. Good. But I think it's a very fertile field for state legislatures. So this uh, is something Republican governors and Republican legislators at the state level can even think about addressing, even though we solve the whole problem. I mean, some of our, uh, not for a plug for the University of Illinois where I attended, but some of our best engineering schools are state state universities. Right, right. Or at state universities. And all the other ones are funded by the federal government anyway, in some sense. The joke is- they say Georgia Tech's the MIT of the South, except in Georgia, they say MIT is the Georgia Tech of the North. <laughs> anyway, the study, which is a report, which is on our website, cis.org, is entitled Science, Technology, Espionage, and Math. And the subtitle is Are STEM Students from the People's Republic of China Jeopardizing Our Economic and National Security? It's definitely um, worth looking at. It's got an executive summary if you want to get the basic point and then goes into a lot of detail with a lot of citations. 
thanks, George, for doing this and thanks for coming in. And we may be doing more on this in the future because this is a pretty fertile field for uh, writing and research. Mark, thanks so much for having me. And finally, I wanted to talk about something that our director of research, Steve Camerata, has written a lot about, but had an op-ed recently in the Dallas paper about the fact that the real employment crisis in the United States is not that businesses are having trouble hiring people for some jobs. And they are, and this is not a lie. I mean, especially small businesses, it's hard. They are having difficulty finding people. The real crisis is not that. That's a result of the real crisis, which is the consistently falling share of working age people who are actually working. And immigration isn't going to solve that. Immigration just enables us to ignore it. And and Steve, he had some statistics in here, and he was specifically talking about Texas, but this applies across the board. He said that among men in Texas of what they call prime working age, so it's 25 to 54, and that's usually like the barometer. Those people almost all work, usually. In 1979, which wasn't that long ago, 93% of working age people, this is people, not, not just working age, but prime working age, they call it, 25 to 54, 93% of them worked. That was in 79. In 2019, before COVID, it was already down to 88%. And so this is, remember, before COVID, it's now down at 84%. So that's 16% of prime age men. These are without a college degree. So they either have some college or high school degree or maybe no high school degree at all, but they're just not working. And that is a serious problem. At the same time, the immigrant population in Texas has grown quite significantly, and obviously that applies everywhere. And this isn't just an immigration issue. Immigration almost certainly has contributed to this, but as Steve writes, immigration is certainly not the only cause of decline in labor force participation, unquote. So what he makes the point, though, that getting especially less educated Americans, people without a college degree, back into the world of work is going to involve a lot of things. Maybe we're going to have to change welfare policy. Maybe we're going to have to change some of our education and training and move more toward apprenticeships, what have you. Those aren't our areas of expertise, but there's all kinds of things like that, that various institutions, government, state and local, federal, as well as corporations and others will do. But what immigration does is enables all of those institutions, government at different levels, corporations, schools, what have you, it takes away the urgency to deal with this problem of people dropping out of the labor force because you can always just use immigration as a crutch to enable us to turn away from the problem. It disincentivizes the various institutions in our society to address why it is such a large share of the workforce have people have dropped out of the world of work and reduces the incentive to make the decisions, the investments and decisions, some of which may well be politically difficult, to address that problem. If the sort of path of least resistance is just 
you know, let's import some people to do this work instead and just give Americans who've dropped out of the labor force a welfare check and then that makes my life easier as a politician or a business leader or what have you. That's not a long-term solution and it's not in the national interest. So even though this issue of people dropping out of the labor force is only partly caused by immigration, it continued mass immigration makes it possible, makes it easier for us to ignore it and postpone the politically sometimes difficult decisions and actions we need to take to address this serious social problem. That op-ed is Dallas Morning News. We have a teaser on our website, cis.org, if you want to take a look at it, or it's Dallas Morning News, Stephen Camerata. I think it may be behind a paywall. I'm not sure. That is it for this week. This is Mark Krikorian, Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off for Parsing Immigration Policy. <laughs>